Our first scripture reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. As we preach through the Gospel of Mark, we are reading in the book of Ecclesiastes. Rebecca is going to come and read for us. Rebecca. Ecclesiastes 2, 12 to 17. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the full, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the full. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. We are working our way through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we have been over the past little while. In the Gospel of Mark, it's a retelling of, of the life and the work of Christ. And uh, he's, we are in sort of the last week of Christ's life, as you'll see in just a second, uh, quickly heading towards um, Good Friday on, and Easter Sunday, all those sorts of things. But there's a, there's a number of events and teaching that happened in this last week that are extremely important. We're going to be hitting some of those today. You'll find the, the reading on the back middle, middle portion of your bulletin. Uh, you can turn there a reading from Mark 11. Ed's going to come and read it for us, Ed, if you would. A reading from Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, 
And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together from Mark chapter 11. Imagine for a moment that one day you went out in your car uh, to run some errands. Got to drive around, got to pick up some groceries, dry cleaning, library books, whatever, whatever you're doing. So you're out driving, running around the town, and all of a sudden you have to come to a dead stop on the road. Traffic is stopped. And as you look ahead, you can see cars backed up in every direction. And what you notice is a light, a traffic light has been knocked out by a falling tree and a lane is blocked. The remaining, you know, lights in the intersection are all out. It, it, it's chaos. You know, no one's, no one's really moving too much. Now, being polite Canadians, no one's really honking or whatever, uh, but people are starting to get frustrated. And as cars try to, you know, sneak and weave through the intersection, uh, there's some near misses. And then all of a sudden, you can see up ahead, a man in a business suit walks into the middle of the intersection and begins to direct traffic. He has no uniform, but he acts in this very cold or confident, bold manner, and he begins to signal with his hands, you know, waving people, directing things, and people, cars begin to follow his instructions. Traffic begins to move. Now, if you're sitting in your car on one hand, you're like, great, someone is doing something. This is great. It's going to save me a bunch of time. But on the other hand, who is this guy? What, what, what's, what's he doing? What credentials does he have? What if he's a sociopath? What if he has malicious intent? What if he just wants to get his car through? He's back in the line somewhere. He, he doesn't look like a police officer. How does he exercise this kind of authority just to start telling cars, telling drivers what to do? Well, in our passage today, a, a youngish man steps into a far more important thing than an intersection, but into a temple, but he begins to aggressively direct traffic, starts telling people what to do, starts giving orders. You go here. You stop doing this. And there are all kinds of responses to him. Many are astonished. They're amazed by him. Others are very mad. They're like, we were the ones giving orders a little while ago. And others just simply have this authority question. Who is this man to be issuing orders? Who does he think he is? So kind of surrounded by this story of the fig tree, we have this authority issue at stake. And I think it's important that we answer it, that we might understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. So we'll take this text in three sections, if you're taking notes or following along. We'll talk about the fig tree first, the lesson of the fig tree. Then we'll talk about the lesson of the temple. And then where the passage ends is where we'll end with the authority question. Now, if you're paying very careful attention, you may have noticed from last week to this week, we've skipped over Mark 11, 1 through 11, which is the triumphal entry of Jesus. Uh, we preached that text about a year ago. I honestly couldn't even remember if it was me. It may have been me or Frankie or someone else. If you want to hear that sermon, our thoughts on the triumphal entry, I'm sure you can find it on the internet somewhere. But basically, long story short, Jesus enters Jerusalem. It's what we now call Palm Sunday to shouts of worship and acclamation. You know, cloaks are spread on the road, palm branches are waved and put on the road. This kind of sort of strange but royal procession goes into Jerusalem. 
But Jesus doesn't sleep over in Jerusalem that night. He goes back out to Bethany, this little small town near Jerusalem. And the next morning after the triumphal entry, that's where verse 12 picks up the story. And apparently Jesus has not had breakfast. He's hungry as he walks along the way back to Jerusalem. But off in the distance, good news, Jesus spies a fig tree, verse 13, goes up to see if there's any fruit on it. He only finds leaves, no fruit. And Mark notes, wasn't the season for figs. Now, is Jesus a bit hangry? You know, he's having a, he's having a tough morning. Uh, we, he, he just starts cursing the fig tree. Is he just bad-tempered? You know, some of you who aren't morning people, maybe you can identify. Or is there, is there something else going on with Jesus here? Well, Mark is right in that it's not the season for figs, but fig trees actually produce two crops, two fruits. One that grows very early in the season along with the leaves, and the second that grows very late in the season, and it's the more mature, recognizable, you know, figs that, that you might know. The first crop grows with the leaves. It's this kind of nodule called the breba crop. And it grows on top of whatever grew from last year, like on, on top of last year's growth. It tends to be smaller, kind of acidic, not as tasty as a mature fig. But if you're a hungry walker, if you haven't had breakfast, you know, it's a helpful snack. So what does that mean? Well, it means that when Jesus goes up to the fig tree and he finds only leaves, what he expected to find there were leaves and the breba crop. And because this fig tree did not have this other crop, it meant there was something wrong with this tree. If there were no nodules, if, if it didn't have the previous year's growth, it mean it did not produce figs in the last season, and absent a miracle, this fig tree is not going to produce figs in this season either. In short, it's a defective tree. It's not a dead tree, it's a defective tree. Growth without fruit, that essentially equals decay or disease or just some kind of, uh, of unhealth. And Jesus curses the tree for its lack of health. Now, why does he curse the tree? You might be wondering, what did that tree ever do to Jesus? Why does he need to be so mean? Couldn't have had just gone happily growing leaves? Well, the answer comes through kind of like a fun literary trick that Mark pulls. And by trick, all I mean is like skateboard trick, you know, like something cool and, and, and interesting. Because the fig tree story comes to an abrupt end. Jesus curses the tree. And then Jesus all of a sudden is headed into the temple. But then a few verses later, the fig tree reemerges in the story. The next morning, if you look down at verse 20, they walk by the fig tree again, and Peter's like, hey, wait a second. Hey, Jesus, isn't the fig tree you cursed? The tree is now completely withered. And so the question when you're a reader is, why wouldn't Mark put both halves of the story together? Why is he separating them? And you might be tempted to answer, well, it's, he's very, being very chronological. One happened one day, one happened the next. I, I think there's more to it than that. I think Mark is using the story of the, of the fig tree like two pieces of bread to kind of form a sandwich. He's using the fig tree as a wrapper for this other kind of very important story and a lesson about the temple that's a bit harder to discern. I guess what I'm saying, if you didn't follow that, is if you can figure out the fig tree with the lack of fruit, with the cursing, that will give you some clues to what's going on in the temple. So let's puzzle this out. We have a fig tree full of leaves and growth, if you view it from a distance, it seems healthy. But if you get up close and kind of look under the leaves and examine it, it turns out to be a bad tree, full of decay, not working right. And over such trees, Jesus pronounces a word of judgment. He curses them. Or to think of it a different way, he fast forwards what would have eventually happened and brings it into the present. But he speaks a word of destruction and cursing over the tree because that tree was not good. It was not working right. 
What's the lesson to be learned? Well, the disciples are interested first in kind of what this teaches about faith. They're kind of wowed by the miracle, like, wow, you can just command nature and and have it obey. And Jesus does take some time to explain, you know, faith is key to life with God. If you have enough faith, you can command more than fig trees. Jesus says, you can throw whole mountains into oceans. Now, moving a mountain, by the way, it's important to recognize this is Jewish slang for doing the impossible. So it's not just like a random, a random illustration Jesus pulled out. It's, it's, it was known. So Jesus is telling the disciples, part of the lesson of the fig tree is God responds to people who ask for things in faith. God does the impossible. He moves mountains for people who, who trust him. Now, importantly, this isn't the main point of the passage, but does this verse teach, as some have claimed, that God will give you anything and everything you ask for as long as you have sufficient faith. I mean, that's what the verse appears to say, right? If we're being honest, as long as you don't doubt, but really, you know, white knuckle and believe your very hardest, that God will give you what you want. Is that true? Well, I think the answer to that question is, well, how many mountains have you, have you seen thrown into the sea? And the answer, physically speaking, is zero, at least none that I know of. But the answer, spiritually speaking, of course, is, is many, millions, billions. And what I mean by that is, if you can recall a few weeks ago, the story of the rich man, and Jesus said, a rich man going to heaven, well, that's as plausible as a camel going through the eye of a needle. And everyone's like, that's impossible. And he's like, it is impossible, except with God, all things are possible. And I think the point of the fig tree, the point of this teaching on faith and prayer is the same thing. All things are possible for God. God can move mountains. God can answer prayers. God can do extraordinary things when, people, when his people ask in faith. There is an impossible life in, in, some, in some ways waiting for you on the other side of belief. But at the same time, faith is not a magic lamp that you just get to rub in and whatever you want kind of comes out the end. The asking and answering is always in line with God's will for your life. But oppositely, the lesson of the fig tree is that growth without fruit is dangerous. It's opposed by God. A life of busyness with no faith is not a life that God rewards. God, Jesus, they're in the business of spiritual fruit. They're going to remove obstacles so that his people can produce more fruit. We must not skip too quickly past the warning of this fig tree. That God's opposed to things that look fruitful and yet are empty. And the examples of this abound. I mean, think about it. What things in the church or in the lives of Christians have the appearance of godliness, the appearance of maturity, but are just leaves and not fruit? I mean, some of us, we go through the external actions of Christianity. We tend church, we maybe try to read our Bibles. Is there any progress in patience? Gentleness, self-control. Like there's activity. The leaves are rustling. Is there fruit underneath? What is being produced from all the activity in your life? And perhaps ask yourself this question. Most people view your life from afar. You are that fig tree kind of growing over there. There's leaves happening. You come on Sunday. You know their name. They know yours. They, they, everything looks fine in your life. Is there anyone in your life who has come up close to see whether or not there is fruit underneath? If if someone was going to testify in a court of law, yeah, that's a person who's growing in kindness or growing in joy. The lesson of the fig tree, listen, if you are an outwardly religious person, it ought to make you tremble. Because Jesus is saying, I don't just want leaves. I don't just want activity. I come looking for fruit. And if he doesn't find it, there is a word of judgment. 
But that leads us to the temple, the lesson of the temple, part two. So sandwiched in between these fig leaves, these fig, fig leaves, fig tree halves, is a visit by Jesus to the temple. And remember, this is the day after the triumphal entry. We're on Monday, last week of Jesus' life. If you look at verse 15, it says, He enters the temple and he begins to drive out those who are buying and selling the tables of the money changers, those who sold pigeons. Now, the temple in Jerusalem is a very large place. Uh, the first area you'd enter, if you're going into the temple area, there's a few different gates, but it was always it was called the Court of the Gentiles. And it surrounded sort of an interior area, area that was called the Court of Israel, and then there was you know, more holy places and so on. But if you were a woman or a child or a non-Jewish person, that was as close as you could get. And we think of it, it's like, oh, it was probably about the size of the gym. No, no, it was a very large place. Most historians say the temple grounds are over 30 acres, which is uh, like larger than Parliament Hill. So think of like, it's like a big sprawling area. And in this outer court, the court of the Gentiles, two different activities are happening. The first is that some people are exchanging money. So basically, they needed money for two reasons. One is they were supposed to pay a temple tax, a kind of a, a, a per person, but it could not be paid with Roman or Greek or you know, any other form of currency. You had to get Jewish money. So if you were a traveler, you lived in Alexandria or wherever, uh, you'd come and you'd exchange your money, your Greek money or whatever, uh, for the Jewish money to get the correct currency. Just like, you know, if you go to a foreign airport, you know, that's what you do, you get, get your pesos or whatever. And, and then second, once you had this Jewish currency, you'd be able to go to kind of a different area and you'd, and you'd buy animals for sacrifices. And depending on how much, how rich you were, if you were poor, you'd generally buy a pigeon. And if you were, if you had a little bit more money, there was all kinds of other things you could buy, but you know, lamb and sheep's kind of at the, at the higher end if you were a little, if you were a little better off. But if you're just trying to imagine the scene in your mind, trying to picture it, Josephus, who's a, a historian, he recorded that approximately 225,000 lambs were sacrificed every year in the temple. Hundreds of lambs a day, and, and, and leading up to a high, a high holiday, like Passover, which is what was going on, it, it could have been easily thousands of lambs being sacrificed, along with however many pigeons and whatever else. So it's, it's bustling, it's busy, it's loud, there's animals all over the place, there's a ton of things going on, and into this chaos of buying and selling and changing money, Jesus enters, one man on Parliament Hill, just kind of wandering in. But he starts driving out those buying and selling. He overturns their tables of the money changers. He stops everyone from carrying things through the temple. Now here is what's, what's interesting. On one hand, it's clear Jesus is intent on stopping maybe some of the sinful activities that were going on. Perhaps there was cheating. You know, maybe they're taking some, something off the top when they're exchanging the currency. Um, he wants the Gentiles, he wants all the nations to have a place to come and pray and seek God. But there's more than that. If you look carefully at the end of verse 17, Jesus says the temple has become a den for robbers. N.T. Wright in his commentary helpfully points out the word for robbers is actually something more akin to, to revolutionaries, brigands, those who disturb the peace you know, for rebellion and revolution's sake. But more than that, Wright goes on to point out that the den of robbers, the den is not the place they do their stealing, it's the place they retreat to once they're done their stealing. A den is a hideout. Den is where you go to stash your treasure and, and rejoice in all the, all, the, all the crimes you've committed successfully. The accusation by Jesus is not specifically that there are crimes taking place in the temple, though that would have been undoubtedly true. His accusation is the temple is serving as a place for spiritual criminals to hide out and rejoice in their sin. 
So look, should the Gentiles have had a place to pray and to seek God without being disturbed by all this commercial activity? Of course they should have. But Jesus isn't just stopping people from getting cheated. It says he's stopping people from carrying sacrifices through the temple into the inner courts where the sacrifices would have been made. He's stopping people, normal people, from buying animals in the first place. He is shutting the whole thing down. And depending on your Bible translation, this this passage is often labeled the cleansing of the temple. I don't think that's right. Cleansing is not used anywhere in the text. I don't think the temple is being cleansed. I think the temple is being judged. Jesus isn't there to reform the temple. Like maybe we can do a little bit of sweeping, you know, patch some walls up or whatever. No, 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 no. He is there to pass judgment on the temple. It's not working. (laughs) We need to shut this thing down. If no currency can be exchanged, there's no money for sacrifices. If no one's allowed to carry anything through the court of the Gentiles, no sacrifices are going to be made. Jesus is attacking the very functioning of the temple. And that's why these guys are mad enough to kill him. The scribes and the priests, these other leaders. Verse 18, the leaders want to destroy him for what he's doing. And even secular historians, aka, you know, Wikipedia, says this event in the temple, it's a clear trigger for the crucifixion. For the religious leaders, they're like, we cannot allow this to go on. But our question must be this, why, why is he doing this? Why is he acting like this? Why why is he attacking an institution that God commanded in the law? God gave the people the temple and said, here's how it's supposed to work. Well, the answer is back in our fig tree. I think it's the key for unlocking this passage. What has the temple become? There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of leaves. It's religiously busy. From the distance, it looks fine. Seems good, seems healthy. But what happens when you get up close? There's no fruit there. There's no true spirituality. Prayer is not being helped, it's being hampered. There's growth and there's noise, but there's no fruit. The Gentiles are not being welcomed. Israel's not being a light to the nations. And further, all the sacrifices, they weren't gonna be enough. They are putting off God's wrath, but they're not dealing with God's wrath. The temple is is breaking and broken. It's insufficient. The problem with the temple goes far deeper than, than greed and money. It's just not functioning, and Jesus arrives to pronounce judgment. We need a new temple, that's what he's saying. The tree is not producing fruit. Now, the lesson of the temple is quite clear, and it's a sobering one. There is a way to be a religious institution, aka a church, that looks busy and is noisy, that has a lot going on, leaves are being produced, but there is no fruit underneath. A church is not to be measured by its activity, the volume of its actions, but by the quality of its fruit. Jesus says, this is what I'm looking for. When I get up close and peer under the leaves, that's what I want to see. And maybe your initial reaction is like, well, we're gonna point our finger at all the mega churches. They're really busy, aren't they? Look at all the programs. I'm sure it's just full of religious consumers over there at the Met or the Meeting House or, or who, whatever other church you feel grumpy about. The question of fruitfulness, it's one for us to think about. We have leaves here. We do things like Sunday school, small groups, Sunday services, board game nights, whatever. We spend money. You show up. 
The question we ask has to be deeper than, are you being kept busy by us? Is there fruit being produced by our church? Are we increasing in kindness? Are we becoming more patient? Are we growing in love towards our neighbors and toward God? This week, as you are likely aware, Tim Keller died. Tim Keller was a pastor, a writer, church planter, and much more. He belonged to our denomination. He was impossibly smart. <laughs> he, he wrote books. He remembered everything, had an amazing memory. To many of us who are pastors, he was kind of a pastor to us. It's actually unlikely I would be a church planter without his influence. Now, a pastor friend of mine referred to him as kind of our Gandalf, this one who kind of wandered around and helped us kind of keep on track and do things. And his death really affected me, much more than I would have thought. I never met him in real life, walked by him a few times. But I had a hard time kind of getting off the internet, getting off Twitter, because I, w- I wanted to read the stories of his life, to hear what his impact had been you know, in, in other people. And look, this was a man of incredible outward success. Huge church in the biggest city in America, founder of a church planting network that spanned the globe, founder of the Gospel Coalition, this massive center for writing and evangelical theology, author of best-selling books, etc., etc. But look, those are leaves, ultimately. What person after person wrote about, and if you go read the tributes online, what they write about is none of that stuff. What they write about is the fruit of his life. Humility, kindness, self-effacing, encouraging. And if you know Tim Keller, you would know he would not want this sermon to be about him. But I couldn't help but reflect on his life in light of this question. What is growing in us? We can have all the outward success in the world. We can be 10 times or 100 times as big as we are now. What is growing in us? Is it just leaves or is there fruit underneath? That's the question we have to answer. Okay, part three, on whose authority? If you look at verse 27, Jesus is back at the temple on Tuesday. It's actually very likely, all the, all the commentators are like, all the regular activities have likely restarted overnight. <laughs> like, they're just back to carrying things through and offering sacrifices, all the rest. But the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they corner Jesus and they have this question, what, what gives you the right to do what you're doing? You can almost imagine them, you know, waving their finger, waving their, waving their head at him. Jesus stumps them with a question. I mean, he doesn't really stump them. They know the answer. They just don't like the answer. And we're left without a direct answer to this question. On whose authority? We're not told. From the outside, this situation looks like where we began today. Remember the the car trip, the traffic jam, the civilian directing traffic? What gave him the right to do what he was doing? Well, what if I told you the civilian man directing traffic was no mere civilian, but was in fact the chief of police. Newly arrived in the city, maybe kind of unknown by everyone, but he's not merely qualified to direct traffic. He is in fact the most qualified person in the whole city in the, in, in the time of crisis. He may not look the part, he's got his suit on, but he's actually the person that we need to sort out a traffic crisis. In front of the chief priests in the temple, Jesus looks like ordinary rabbi, ordinary Jewish guy. What right does he have to stop all these temple activities? What they do not know, what they do not recognize is in front of them stands the king, 
the owner of the temple, the one who gave the temple in the first place. If anyone has a right to say, this is not working, we need to redo, it would be him. Why can Jesus stand in judgment over the temple? Because he's the one who gave the temple in the first place. And in its place, Jesus intends to construct a new temple in his body. That's what this whole conversation is foreshadowing. The current temple is broken. It needs to be torn down and replaced. But there still needs to be a place where all the nations can come and meet God and seek God. But that will not be confined to Jerusalem any longer, but will be located in Jesus Christ. Jesus pronounces judgment on the temple, but then offers himself as a new temple. And in a similar way, going all the way back to the fig tree, Jesus pronounces judgment on fruitless institutions and fruitless individuals in our world. But in the same breath, listen to me, in the same breath, he offers himself to all who sit underneath that judgment. What you have to understand, and you can't miss this, is if you feel like if that fig tree and you're full of busyness and there may be things growing but you're lacking fruit, look, you are indeed in grave spiritual danger, but you have to know Jesus Christ has offered himself in your place. Yes, Jesus comes to pronounce judgment and cursing, but then he offers to take that judgment and curse. If only you will come to him. In the waning moments of the Last Supper, as Jesus reclines around the table with his disciples and then walks towards the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus offers an analogy, and I think it's an apt way for us to close. He tells his disciples, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you abide with me, that's if you stay connected to me, you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you feel the lack of fruit in your life this morning, if, you've been, if you are concerned about the abundance of leaves but no fruit, then the solution Jesus offers is simple. You, you must return to him. You must abide with him. You must be connected to him. Not only will he pay the, the judgment and curse bound for you, but he will reproduce his life in you. I think what Tim Keller would tell you is the great secret of his life was not his intellect or his energy or his cleverness or his strategy or anything else, but just the fact that he knew Christ. He was connected to Jesus. If there was any fruit that resulted from his life, it was because the life of Christ was being reproduced in him. My prayer today is that you would know this Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful and grateful that you have offered yourself as the new temple, the place where we meet with God, but also you've offered yourself as the one who saves us from curse and judgment and reproduces a fruitful life in us. Please save all of us who are fruitless fig trees. Save our church from becoming a place of lots of busyness, lots of noise but no fruit underneath. May you reproduce your life in us. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.